Welcome everybody to this talk. It's a, it's a privilege really to do this and, and I do appreciate the opportunity to do this. So in my current rendition of practice, um, I have a regular morning practice with Jill, sometimes evening too. Uh, we go on retreats. We're teaching this retreat. And what I've really come to see is that, that those are really key pieces of practice. But bringing practice into life is uh, really important to me um, and to those around me. And so I'm going to do a little experiment, and you're my subjects. <laughs> Uh, uh, with this talk because I'm going to talk about it in terms of something that for me is both a passion and at the same time a challenge. Like a lot of things that are our passions, they also have their challenging aspects. And it's, um, I don't think I'd call it an addiction, but it's, uh, it's something that I spend a lot of time and energy doing. It isn't destructive, so I don't think you could call it an addiction. Um, it's playing softball. So uh, I want to talk about this um, to you and, and, and what I bring to it. I want to talk about what I bring to it based on the Dharma and things I've learned in the 20 years or so that I've been practicing this form of, of Dharma. So you are going to have the job of trying to see where, how this metaphor of softball applies to something that you have a passion for. And that you also may find a little challenging. And, you know, it could be other sports. I know there's some dancers here. It could be dance. It could be raising a family. I mean, we do have to bring energy and passion to that to do it well. But certainly we all know that has challenges. So um, the visual arts, uh, poetry, uh, living with another person. So you'll have to do the work of sort of trying to connect some of the things that I'll be talking about. So there are some dangers about talking about something like this because it can be a, it can fall into ego. So I'm going to start with all the ego things now and get it out of the way. Okay, because I, th and the reason I'm going to do this, and hopefully it, it won't really be ego, is that I want to let you know what it is I do and how I do it, and the level that I'm involved in it with, so that it really might make a little more sense to you. So um, I play two forms of softball. It's all this slow, arcing pitch softball. You know, it's maximum height of 12 feet maximum low level of six feet. So it's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of not getting ahead of yourself. And um, I play in, in a league that is a 50 and over league. 
and I play in a, on a tournament team that is bracketed by five years. And so this last year, I've played on a 75-year-old team because that's my current age. Those, those, that team plays in tournaments that become national tournaments, regional, national uh, tournaments. And so I'm playing at a, at a pretty good level. And I have been on teams that have won national championships. And so uh, I'm into this in a serious way, <laughs> sometimes too serious. And um, so uh, I wanted to get that done with, so I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Um, the other part of it is that unless you can apply this to some endeavors that you take, that you do, uh, it might seem sort of frivolous. So part of it's going to be on you. But you know, when you listen to a lecture or to a talk, um, there's always work involved, really, to kind of contemplate what's being said. So the question then is when we partake in an endeavor that is both that we both have passion for and that has challenges is how do we do it skillfully? How do we do it where it's a positive endeavor for ourselves and for the people around us? There are some things that softball does have to offer. Um, Number one is that I meet all kinds of people. I meet, uh, I meet uh, firemen, a lot of firemen and policemen because they have generally kept themselves in pretty good shape. So they're strong and they, they've stayed active. So lots of firemen and policemen. Garbage men, men in the trades, a scattering of women. It's one, there, there aren't, I'd love to see more women, but I think maybe they have better things to do. I don't know. Um, there aren't enough. There is one woman that we play with who really holds her own. She's great. She's really a good ball player and has the respect of all of the men. There are um, preachers. Uh, there have been three doctors that uh, I've known for the past 18 years or so that I've played in this league. I'm one of them. And uh, the other one who was involved had such anger problems that he had to quit. <laughs> it was too destructive. It's a little disturbing. And actually, I knew him as a doctor, and he was fine as a doctor. It was really strange. He worked, for, worked at Kaiser. And, and, but when he got on the field, he, he lost it. He just, he just had a terrible time. And a couple of lawyers and um, garbage man. It's a really nice guy that I know. So a diverse group and, and ethnic, ethnically very diverse as well and racially very diverse. So I really like that and politically very diverse. <laughs> that can be interesting. <laughs> so when, uh, I mean, I'm admittedly, I am progressive. That's just <coughs> where I come from. And nobody here has to have any particular political views to belong here. So let's get that out there right now. But there are many Trump supporters who I play with. And so I'm able to talk to them. And they're guys I like. There are a lot of guys who I really like. And so that's interesting. I find that very informative and interesting 
because we, if we don't have contact with people who have other views, then we tend to um, kind of pigeonhole them. We, we put them in a, in a box that maybe isn't completely fair. So, so it has that to offer. The other thing is that it's a team sport. And so as a team sport, I don't care how good you are. You depend on the, uh, in this case, it, we play with 10 or 11 people. When we get to older, we play with actually with 11. We play with four outfielders and an extra infielder. And so um, it depends on everybody. If you have people that can't do what they need to do, then I don't care how good you are, you're going to lose. So we're interdependent. This is sort of along with Buddhist philosophy, interdependency. The other thing is that it encourages ones to be fit. It really helps, it motivates me to stay fit, to stay flexible. I've got a strong yoga practice for about 44 years or so. Um, and to stay strong and to work on my endurance because if I didn't do that at my age, I couldn't do what I do. So I'm a shortstop and um, because of yoga, I can still bend over. <laughs> and uh, there are many strong, very fine athletes that I play with who have trouble doing that. I mean, have now can't quite get down on the ground. And so that creates some problems. So, um, so it encourages physical fitness. And I think that's really important for us too, to have some motivation to do that. So it's fun for me and it's also challenging. So when we engage in something like this, we have many choices on how to engage. We can do the Nike thing of just do it, which I think probably is really more relating to getting over your fear. And that's, that's in there for me too. Um, but what I'm talking about is just doing it without bringing any um, reflection, any mindfulness, any awareness to it. Um, so that's one way we could do it. Um, but what I have brought to it, just because this Dharma is such a big part of my life, is I've brought to it um, mindfulness. I've brought to it uh, a lot of reflection. There's a, there's a Pali term called Yosano Manasikara. And, it, and that means wise reflection. And so I, I re reflect on my experiences, sometimes during, but mostly afterwards, you know, well, what was that all about? Or why, why did I suffer during that little episode that I had? So bringing that kind of awareness to it. And it's, I have found that it's really critical for me to hold the wise intentions, the three skillful wise intentions of harmlessness. So even though I'm competitive and I am very competitive, it's never at the expense of harming either myself, at least not intentionally, or my, my adversaries. Uh, and that isn't true with all players. And I've run into that. I've been on the receiving end of that. I had a about a six foot two, 230 pound um, retired fireman um, 
run into me at second base. We have no we have rules for old men. And part of that is that you don't collide, you avoid collisions. And and that's a great rule. And so um, I was taking a ball from second base and covering it as shortstop to force this guy out. And he ran into me and he hit me and he hit me hard. He didn't really hurt me, but but he made a mistake. And so I just I said, you know, you're supposed not supposed to you're supposed to avoid collision. He got pissed at me. He got really angry at me and I had never seen the side of him. I'd always thought he was kind of, you know, really a pretty controlled gentleman. And we had to work that one out. I had to go up to him a couple of days and afterwards at the end, I said, you know, I didn't do that to upset you. I just, that is the rule. And I'm, an, you know, you're 53 years old and I'm 75 years old and you outweigh me by probably 80 pounds. And so I just want to be safe. And he couldn't hear it. He was upset. But my intention is never to create an enemy. So uh, uh, I saw him a few days later and we worked it out. And he said, I do get carried away. So, so non-harming. Kindness. Um, my intention is to be kind. I don't care if it's they're on my team or I'm, I'm playing somebody... Uh, an adversary, I, if they do well, um, I'll say, hey, great hit. You know, be, being kind, bringing your kindness into, into play. And, of course, renunciation. And renunciation has a couple of ways of being defined. But in this case, let's just say renunciation of not being greedy. So this translates to me of wanting to win but not having to win. Uh, not having spinning off into aversion. So um, sometimes it can happen that a teammate makes a critical error and the first reaction is, oh, but then regrouping and letting that go. And of course, delusion. Um, maybe I'm delusional just playing softball at the age of 75. <laughs> I don't know. But... Um, trying to just stay, stay present in this game. So, um, so, so then there, so let's talk about what the challenge, oh, well, I should, I should mention a kindness story actually. So I was in Las Vegas, one of my least favorite places to be, but that's where the national tournament championship always is. And I was traveling with a man who just recently lost his wife and I had made all the car arrangements and everything and I drove and I don't really know my way around there. I should by now, but I don't. And um, one of the members of my team on the very last day we played um, took a fall and he, he hurt himself. He went to the emergency room. He, they put him in a, in a, a cast of sorts, a, a, a Velcro cast, and he had to be in a wheelchair he had, had, he had rented a car and he lived, he was, he was staying in a place that was, not, was remote from where we were and not close to the airport. But he needed a ride because somebody had taken his rental car back and he didn't have a way to get back. And so I just, I just said, yeah. I, I think in the past I would have probably been thinking of a little more selfish, but it's, kindness has become, through this practice, just a lot more automatic for me. And so I said, sure. We'll pick you up. Well, my, the guy who I was traveling with was upset with me. 
And he said, you know, you should have asked me first. You know, we got to go out of our way and it's going to create hassles and all that. And I said, well, Bob, it's just the right thing to do. And so it wasn't that, Bob. (laughs) But Bob, that was the right thing to do. Um, And so we picked him up and it, it felt right from the before, during and after. And he was so thankful and it didn't create hassles at all. We found our way just fine. So kindness, you know, bringing kindness in in any way you can just makes your experience so much better and and, and all those around you. So what are the challenges? I think the first challenge is that we bring our conditioning. Well, we bring our conditioning to everything we do. But if we have a lot of passion around it, oftentimes we bring conditioning that sometimes is positive and sometimes is difficult. So in my case, the positive conditioning I had is that I was born genetically with really good reflexes and good coordination. I mean, it was was nothing to do with me. That's the way I came out. And so that has been, that's made it pretty easy for me. We have the cultural conditioning around the game of softball. It's our national pastime. So it's kind of a big deal for a lot of people. You have a lot of energy on it. Um, And we're competitive. We're really a competitive society. And so children are, and and many adults, are really uh, attached to winning. So this brings a lot of challenging energy to to the game. Sometimes it throws me back to fourth and fifth grade. You know, when, when we'd be on the schoolyard and, you know, we'd get into these f- sometimes physical fights. And there have been physical fights, old men fighting about, <laughs> you know, kind of. But that's part of our conditioning. So, so then there's, the, con- then there's the, the, um, the circumstances of one's life the conditioning of one's life. And this is where I, this is where I um, have some challenges, and it's around my relationship with my dad. So I would say, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in an apartment, and I would say about from about the age of five, um, my dad had me outside playing ball with catch with him because he was a baseball player. He played a, a, a schoolyard game in Chicago that, that uses a 16-inch ball, which is about that big. And it's played without a glove, and it, the ball doesn't go very far, so you can play it in small spaces. And so he did that. And his conditioning was that when he reached the age of 40, he stopped because nobody played beyond the age of 40. And I often think of what a charge he would get. He's been deceased for a long time out of the fact that I'm playing at this age. I think he would have loved it. So um, my dad was a hard driving guy. He was a tough and loving dad at the same time. He was physically affectionate, which was great. Gave me a lot of reassurance. He was a perfectionist. He was well coordinated and good at what he did. I when writing this, I came. I remembered an incident that I was at a camp and he came to visit and we were playing softball and at that time I was pitching 
And I must have felt so much pressure to perform well, because I did get that, that, uh, and I was doing fine, but I just started crying. And I had one of those cries where I couldn't catch my breath. You know, those, <laughs> you know, those sort of things. And, 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 and I, I, I had, just thinking about it makes me, makes me have, uh, causes an emotional feeling, but um, the pressure. So, so there was some pressure to perform and to perform well. So it's part of my conditioning. And the other thing is, at the age of 36 or so, and Jill was a witness to this, my dad, who was at that point in his early 70s, made a general statement and didn't even realize what he was, the impact, might, what might have been the impact of what he was saying, is that, that my younger brother was really always his favorite child. Yeah, and so in a certain way, I mean, that seems brutal. I don't think his intention was to be harmful. I think it was a little bit of delusion or maybe senility. I don't know. He wasn't really senile at that point. But so that tells you my con- so 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 that I'm bringing all of this to this game, all of this conditioning. So you can think about your conditioning, your family situation, the culture around you, your genetic traits, your gender, uh, all of those things. So that creates some potential issues. And um, the other thing that is a challenge, but I think it's really where the meat of this experience for me lies, is the sense of self, which in Buddhism is the core of why we suffer and where we suffer. This sense of self arising is, is a constant threat uh, in the game. And you know, it arises in the form of self-judgment when you perform poorly. And I've just told you about my conditioning around that. Um, but it arises for most of us in this game when we perform poorly. So self-judgment. Um, the other thing is, uh, is the judgment of others. So you're in this game, but you're not in it. You're not you have all these teammates. And when you let them down, you know, I I know the feeling. You can't help but think, oh, yeah. You know, here I've been playing so hard and so well, and then something happens. But that needs to be let go of because that's also a source of suffering for yourself. And if it's conveyed to your cohorts, and that doesn't make them perform better, we're all doing the best we can. So the sense of judgment really comes up. So a lot of praise and blame, you know, one of these the worldly pursuits that the Buddha talked about, you know. And it's so temporary, you know. I see it in, in, within a game. You know, oh, you're doing great. Wow, everything's really working and you've made some great plays and you've hit the ball well. And the next thing you know, you're, it's a key play and you flub it. So you go from, oh, I'm, God, I'm good, to, <laughs> to ooh, God. I just let the whole team down. So the sense of self, this is the I, the me, the mine, arises strongly. So it's something 
that I really have learned to work with. Because when that sense of self does arise, it's suffering. It's real clear that it's suffering. So the Buddha was right. <laughs> so in the first noble truth, when he talks about uh, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, uh, uh, old age, sickness, and death, uh, 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 not getting what one wants, uh, getting what one doesn't want, then he sort of summarizes. He makes this statement that um, basically attachment or clinging to the sense of self, which is in the form of what he calls khandas, which are kind of bundles, the body, the perceptions we have, uh, how we you know, perceive things based, a lot of it based on our culture, the thoughts we have, um, consciousness itself, just the fact that I notice that there's a light there that I notice. So right, it's, it's really just light that somehow is connected, as Jill mentioned, through contact with my consciousness. And then right away an eye, an eye rises, I see it. So all of these things. So the Buddha is summarizing why we suffer basically as saying, yeah, there's all the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, but really where it's coming from is identification this self that arises, this misperception that there is a self that's independent and then that's unchangeable. But the self really is dependent. You know, see how long th this thing I call self would last if I didn't need anymore. And uh, it's certainly changeable. I can attest to that at 75. It's certainly a different body than when I was 21. So, it's a real chance to explore the arising of the sense of self. And so that's probably almost the, the, the strongest value of, of this sport for me. And it's a chance to work with physical discomfort and emotional discomfort. So the physical discomfort is, you know, this old body of mine is, is running around the bases. It's throwing hard. I have a fractured clavicle, which happened from softball, that never healed. And so I'm throwing, and every time I throw, I hurt. I have degenerative shoulders. But I have checked it with my doctor, <laughs> my orthopedist, and he said the words I wanted to hear. He said, use it or lose it, basically. You know, if we sit around and we baby ourselves and we don't use these joints that are degenerating and falling apart, which they're meant to do, to self-destruct, because they do, then we're going to lose it. It's going to get worse. And there's been lots of studies to corroborate that. Yeah, we do better when we play. And I feel better. My shoulders actually feel better when I'm playing regularly than when, than when I don't. It's interesting. So I see a, a shaking head when somebody who I think surfs. My husband had two complete shoulder replacements if you need. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, I hope I don't get there. Um, I think I'll stop playing before then. Um, and, and then I have played, believe it or not, not a wise thing to do, but I did. And I told my manager, never again. I played in, in a town called Tuolumne, which is in Sonora. And it was 118 degrees. And we played multiple games in that heat. And um, so working with discomfort in a mindful way, which we've 
you know, we've talked about this quite a bit. You know, when we're sitting here, we, we, we're learning to work, to not make it, we can always make it worse, as Jill's mantra was. And that's for sure. I could tell myself stories, which could have even been true, that this is, could kill me, uh, or this is really harmful, or this is really stupid, and maybe there was some truth to that. In reflecting on it, I think it was, and I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and um, so learning how to be equanimous, learning how to just not make it anything more than it is. One thing I did learn playing in that heat is that my physical body could perform pretty well. I was able to perform well, but my mentation was affected. It was, very, it was interesting that 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 was the first thing to start to be affected. I could tell I was losing my concentration. I wasn't quite as clear and you know what my task was. And of course then there's the mental dis discomfort. So uh, fear. So so fear is up uh, for me because when I'm not so much in the 70 when I'm playing my people my peers but when I'm playing 50-year-olds that weigh 230, 240, 250, and some of them, one of them is 6'8", and there's a couple of guys who are 6'5", and 6'6", and we play with the, we like to pretend like we're as strong as we used to be. So we play with these bats that are made out of carbon, like, like the golf clubs that the pros use now. So they're really hot bats, and they don't allow the young guys to play with these bats. So when the ball comes off of those bats, they... They are hit hard. So it's scary. It's scary when a ball comes at you. And this 12-inch this ball is hard. And of course, preconceived ideas of that I'm limited. You know, I shouldn't be doing this. You know, I can't, why, how can I be doing this at 75? I shouldn't be doing this. And of course, the tendency to, to, to shoot the second arrows that have been talked about so much when things are going wrong, you know, you beat yourself up. So these are things that, that really are helpful to work with. So I have brought some discernment to the fear part because I've listened to, to the fear. So, you know, I, I don't think when we have fear that it's always inappropriate. So when I go out there, <laughs> I just had the image of, I don't know if you ever remember those, the Green Hulk things that, that the kids had where they were like blow up things that protect you and you can flop down on the ground and bounce back up and all that. I don't know, maybe that wasn't in your time. But I wear, it I'm the last one to leave the field because I am so heavily padded up. It takes me like 10 minutes to get everything off of me. And so I have, um, I have uh, shin pads, I have knee guards, um, I have wrist guards because the ball will oftentimes come up and there, there's a hard piece in there. And in the last year and a half, I've started wearing a face mask like the women softball players wear, those little wire masks. Because, I, I mean, it just occurred to me, if these guys are going to hit this ball at me, you know, that's screaming, and, and my field, the fields aren't ideal, so the ball sometimes, you know, it looks like it's going to be here, but it ends up up here. I don't want to get hit in the face with that and have, lose my teeth. And people have gotten seriously hurt playing softball. So, so using discernment is always important, using the cognitive mind. And that's important in other parts of softball, which I'll get to. 
So then what about just the performance? You know, what, 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 can we, what can I bring to the performance based on what I've learned from this practice? Well, I realized, um, you know, Jill um, introduced you, I think, like the first day to this pause, relax, and open. And when I first started playing softball, it was, all I was taught was the breath. So I would come to, to let's, let's talk about batting now, approaching, going to try and hit the ball. I would approach that and I would just pay attention to my breath because that was kind of what my practice was. But as I've learned, as I've gone more deeply into the practice and learned all the aspects, maybe not all, but many more aspects of the practice, I've come to see that I can bring a lot more than that. But when I'm on the on-deck circle, so as you're preparing to do whatever you're about to do, pausing, I stop, hold the bat, feel it, move into my body and just hold it on my shoulder, relax. Second part, relax, loosen the jaw, drop the shoulders. And then what I found out is that I too open. I realized it today. I open and we'll be working with this tomorrow on the instructions, this choiceless awareness concept of just opening to all the foundations of mindfulness to my body sensations, to my mental formations, to, uh, to the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, just, and to all my senses, sounds, sights, and I open. And I just, I just stand there, and sometimes my mind just becomes very empty and silent. And that really conditions me in a really positive way to then move towards the batter's box. And then something else needs to be brought into the mix, and that is to concentrate. So I, at that point, am resting. You're not in a hurry to swing, because if the thing you do most often to mess yourself up in slow pitch is you're ahead of the ball. You've unweighted way too early, and you lose your power. So I'm just, I've just come to just stop, but I'm looking. I'm really looking at the ball. And then the rest just sort of happens based on that. So you drop the strategies at that point and you're open to what shows up. In the field, it's a little bit different. In the field, it's a different process. And maybe this would relate to things you might do, like, for example, a work, a work that you bring your passion to. And that is, in the field, I have to, as a shortstop, I'm involved in a lot of plays, and so I have to think about what am I going to do? If the ball is hit to me, I have to use the thinking mind to sort of figure out what am I going to do? If the ball comes to me, what am I going to do? So like if there's a man on first and second, and there's one out, and I know that the runner from home who's going to first is not a speed demon, I'll turn the Think of turning a double play, going to second with the ball, having the second baseman or the buck short, take the ball and throw it to first and get the out. And particularly if the guy on um, second is really fast, I'm not going to think so much about throwing to third. So I contemplate, 
But then when I'm done with that, so I've done that work. But then again, and it's time to move into the body. So I feel my feet on the ground. I do a nice, I, I hold myself in, in, in a way where I'm sort of flat-backed and down low. And I feel my feet rooted in the ground. And then I concentrate and look at the ball. And I'm ready to react. There's an interesting thing about this, though. And it's true with batting, too. Is you have to be... You, you can make all the preparations, but you never really know what's going to happen. Just like life, right? You can make all kinds of preparations, but then the unplanned for happens. And if you're going to really be a top ball player, you have to be able to make that last minute through probably years of playing and through paying close attention, just that last minute adjustment. If the guy going to a third base um, loses his balance, falls. I mean, that ha that's happened. You know, we're, we're old guys. So uh, even though he might be fast, uh, he might you know, have slipped. It might be not the greatest conditions. So ah, so then it would be better to get the lead runner because in case I don't, I'm not able to turn the double play, at least I've got the lead runner. So I might go to third instead, and third goes to second. So. So being, and same thing with the pitch, you know, and I might plan to go to right field because that's what's called for, to hit this way, but I don't get the pitch for it, so I have to adjust. So this is, I think, a really critical piece, and that is the piece of spontaneity. So we, we can't really be too rigid we really need to allow for spontaneity. Jill talks about when uh, we go to prison, for example, and this is, comes from her teaching in other venues as well, is to make good plans and then be prepared to let them go. And that happens in prison because we'll come in, we'll say, okay, we're gonna talk about this, and then, yeah, this would be a good thing to talk about. But then something happens. The men come in and they're all upset because something just happened. And so we would be silly not to take advantage of that opportunity to, you know, take advantage of that challenge that just came up for them to, to, to bring it into the terms of the Dharma. And this is true in one's life and this is true in challenging activities. This is true with interactions with one's spouse and children. You know, you might come with a plan, but then as you start to implement the plan, you see, uh-oh, I think I might have missed something here, something really critical. You see a look on your spouse or your child's face that this isn't working. You know, this is, this is not coming off the way I really intended. And so you adjust. You know, you're sensitive and you're aware. So... Um, so it's a lesson in that regard as well. And the other thing that I really learned, which is so interesting, because it came late, is because I learned about my own posture late. I learned that posture is really important in, in, in softball. 
And I don't know how applicable this would be to other endeavors, but dance it certainly would be, how you hold yourself, and other sports and other physical activities, Tai Chi, yoga, you know, all you know, the physical forms. So, you know, the difference of, of, of batting and being like this and waiting for the pitch as compared to being like this. So you have much more capability and capacity for extending when, you're, when your shoulders are open and your back than you do when, even though there is a tendency, you see a lot of batters kind of bending over like that. At some point, you have to open up if you're not open then. And this is true with tennis. I used to play a lot of tennis. You know, it's really important to be upright and open and the chest open. And so that helped me a lot when I really, I re and that took me years to figure out that that was part of, and that came directly from practice because I was a very uncomfortable sitter. I think I mentioned that. I really struggled with finding some comfort when I sat. Um, just bad habits, really, what it, what it was of sitting and standing. And even though I'd done yoga, I really didn't do it entirely properly. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about this hinge bending that Ayla was showing us in yoga, you know, where you bend from the hip. And, and so that's been very helpful. So I bring bringing that. And then there's the, you know, the, the really critical part that shows up on a lot of Buddhist lists, and that is equanimity. And that is, you know, no matter what happens, you know, you can make all the preparations in the world and you can do your homework and you can bring your practice to the game and you can try and be kind and you can try and cause no harm and something will happen and you'll say something, you know, bef before you can, before you can even, it's almost like it's out before it's reached your consciousness. That's not true, but it, it feels like that. And uh, so then, of course, you have to, it's always harder to go back, but you have to make amends. But you have to bring equanimity. You have to bring this ability to kind of go with the flow and not judge yourself and not be bowled over by the negative and not be too grabbed by the positive. And um, to stay present, to really make an attempt to stay present with what's going on. So one more metaphor is something that's referred to in baseball as pitch selection. So you're up there batting and the pitcher is trying to throw you the hardest pitch possible for you to hit. And if he knows you, he knows your tendencies, he'll make sure that he throws you the hardest pitch for you to do what you want to do with it. I go to right field a lot, which means you know, left field would be this way for me, right field would be this way. So an outside pitch is really good for me. So I can kind of take it, kind of come over the ball that way. So I'm pitched inside all the time. And so, but sometimes pitchers can't control. So they throw me by mistake, they throw me an outside pitch and that's great. But sometimes they do. So in a certain way, it's like, you know, your internal processes, which, you know, have you stand up there with all the preparation that one takes, but then you got external. It's like external karma and internal karma, you know? 
So what life throws at you, kind of a good metaphor for that. So no matter what you plan to do and how well you th you're able to execute, life could easily just throw you the wrong pitch. And so one needs to kind of be able to go with the pitch. Because we've probably all been around long enough to realize that we, we can't control that. We can't control what life throws at us. All we can control is how we deal with it to the best of our ability. And, um, you know, the older you one gets, I think the more you see the possibilities of curveballs and sliders and off-speed pitches and all the kinds of um, options that life throws at us that we just don't, we can't control. So one more concept is in the zone. So we've all heard of that, right? You know, when somebody's in the zone. And so I've been in the zone and it's really pleasant, I must say. Um, and uh, it's kind of like when you've done all the hard work, which doesn't guarantee you'll be in the zone because you've always got the external things you can't control. But when the external things work out and line up right, and you've done all the hard work, and you've relaxed into the experience. And what helps you re relax probably more than anything is when you've started out doing well. Like the, you've made a few good fielding plays, you've um, gotten a couple of hits, and now it's the third or fourth time at bat, and you know, you've opened, and all of a sudden things, you're no longer needing to put any kind of effort or management into the mix at all. You've dropped all effort because it isn't needed anymore. And things slow down. And they get quiet. And you just play. And it's delightful. And you can't make it stay and you can't make it happen. You can just be there for it when it does happen and recognize it. And that's a lot like the third noble truth of cessation. When we have suffering, the causes of suffering and cessation. And each Noble truth has an operative. Suffering should be understood. The causes of suffering should be abandoned. And the cessation should be realized. And I, I think recognized is fair to say that that's very close to that. It's, this cessation can easily be missed. It's very subtle. This sort of empty, spacious, self-managing, hard to put into words experience. And so when that shows up, hmm, 
But as soon as you want to hold on to it, it's gone. As soon as you try and grab onto it and manage it and make it stay, goodbye. It's gone. So, in closing, I think there's some importance in being willing to move out of your comfort zone. This is definitely out of my comfort zone. When I find myself in sort of flea bag motels in Central California at a softball tournament and say to myself, why am I doing this? That's not completely in my comfort zone. Or when I'm on the field and I'm playing a team in, in the league play where there's the younger guys, I think of them as young guys. I mean, they're 25 years young. Some of them are 25 years younger than me. And I'm standing up there playing softball with my pads and my mask and, 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 and uh, you know, kind of a little stiff because I'm wearing all this stuff. I, said, I wonder, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone. But there's something to being able to um, go beyond one's fear and to move beyond your comfort zone and uh, not be foolish. I am wearing the mask and I am wearing the pads. And that's actually what allows me to do it. I don't think I could do it at this point without it. It'd be too scary. I would, I'd be stupid. So being able to, being willing to take on endeavors that are a little outside the comfort zone, maybe not way out, but at least a little, is really important and then bringing your practice to it. Dealing with physical pain and discomfort, dealing with all the emotional fears and feelings of inadequacy and all the things that come up around it, and bringing your practice to that are really important. So I encourage you to, if any of this is helpful, to bring it to endeavors that you can see have some parallels to softball. It's a joy in my life. I, I just love it. I just love it for so many reasons. So thank you. <laughs>